every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People, a postmortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. My name's Paul, and I'm your host. Uh, I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin off series Angel. This week uh, is going to possibly be rough. Today we're discussing the 16th episode of Buffy's fifth season, The Extraordinary and Extraordinarily Painful The Body. Uh, joining me is my gobbledygeek co-host and very good friend Arlo Wiley. Arlo, I wish it was under better circumstances, maybe, but thank <laughs> you for coming back. Absolutely, of course. Um, so, just a, a little preamble before we get into it. Um, why is this episode going to be rough for us to talk about? Uh, well, I think for anyone listening, this episode will be rough because this episode is about the death of Buffy's mom, right. Joyce, um, who we've known from the very first episode. So I think for anyone, um, it will be rough for anyone, especially listening, who has lost a parent or a loved one who is very close to them. This will definitely hit home. Uh, for me, specifically, the reason this will be a rough episode is the exact reason that I asked you I, I crowded out the, uh, the competition to make sure that I was on the episode uh, for this episode um, because my mom did pass away uh, a little less than three years ago. So it's it's kind of funny in the way that's not at all funny. Um, this has always been, if not my favorite episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer because it's not fun to watch. It's not enjoyable in the conventional sense. Um, so if not my favorite episode, I have always recognized that this is the best episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So many years ago, when I first started watching the show, this I got to this episode and it completely blew my mind. Because, uh, you know, I was just getting into movies and TV and writing and uh, Ingmar Bergman was and still is one of my major touchstones. And I would find out after the fact that Ingmar Bergman is also uh, a favorite of Joss Whedon. And so when I got to this episode, and, and I did see this episode before I ever saw any Bergman, but eventually, you know, because I was consuming all of this around the same time and I made the connection, I saw this and I was like, this is the closest to a Bergman film that we are probably ever going to get on American television. And that was before, you know, I feel like the 
this was well before the rise of auteur TV. So that might not be so true anymore, but this episode has always struck me as something special and significant. And unfortunately that is even more so now that I have experienced the same kind of loss that Buffy has. So this would be a very special episode in a non very special episode kind of way uh, for me, even, you know, even if I hadn't lost my mom, but because I have, I absolutely wanted to make sure that I was going to be here to talk about this episode, which maybe is a choice of regret, <laughs> but, but we'll find out. I, I was concerned. First of all, I'm, it, it blows me away to hear that it was a little, a little under three years. I, it does not seem like that long ago. Well, it's funny to me. It feels like three centuries ago. Okay. Well, it's funny. And, um, I keep saying it's funny, but uh, I don't mean that it's funny. Right. Um, at times it feels like ancient history and at times it feels like it happened this morning. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I was nervous about, you being on this episode, uh, and I, I gave you several outs. I've you give, did, you did. I've given you multiple opportunities to say, you know, maybe this isn't such a good idea. Um, as late as yesterday, yeah. you were asking me if if, if we, you needed to find a ringer. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, you uh, you were adamant that this is the episode for you. So we will see how this goes. Um yeah, let me so let me really quick just drop the spoiler warning here uh, in case for some strange reason anyone is listening to this for the very first time. Uh, Conversations with Dead People is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole, which means spoilers and a lot of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series all the way through at least once, press pause go do that come back whenever you're ready this this podcast will still be here so with that uh, boring business out of the way uh, arlo if you're ready let's go to work okay let's do it all right let's see what happens guys so this is uh, episode 516 the body originally aired february 27th uh, 2001 so uh, just right after my 31st birthday um, because as i said last week uh, mutant enemy hates me and uh, this is written and directed by Joss Whedon. Yes. Um, all right. So I'm going to ask you, Arlo, to start us off. So the most initially immediately shocking thing about this episode is that, well, the very first scene, we've already seen it. Yeah. Uh the previous episode, I Was Made to Love You, which, as Joss Whedon notes on the commentary for this episode, uh, I Was Made to Love You is a relatively um, light and maybe even kind of silly episode mm -hmm. compared to this one. Um, so there were two reasons that he repeated the scene. Um, one was so that there would be some kind of cliffhanger that would clue people into the fact that the next episode was going to be something a little different. Um, and the other is that you can't really, and I, and I feel, he doesn't say this on the commentary, but I feel like I've read this somewhere over the years. You can't really um, 
have something, you know, a, a new scene that is that then has the the cut to the theme song, you right. know, that kind of interrupts the flow. So it's almost like the first scene of this episode is kind of like the previously. Yeah. So this is the officially the only Buffy episode that opens without a previously on recap uh, segment. And, and uh, it's because that, that replayed scene, I guess, sort of acts as the previously on. Um, yeah. But but also just having a voiceover that says previously on Buffy the Vampire Slayer would sort of break. They, they do a lot. Joss does a lot uh, throughout this entire episode from beginning to end to set it apart from the rest of the series, just tonally and, and stylistically. And um, I, I'm even I kind of wish that we had gotten away from even having the opening and closing music. Like, I, 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 I almost wish I we had, didn't have the opening titles, but uh but that those are the opening titles and the the closing titles are kind of the only things that uh that sort of ground this even remotely in the usual buffy format uh as for the rest of it the this uh, this episode has a lot of firsts and uh it it pulls out a lot of stuff that uh, most people identify as uh series features such as music there's no music in the entire episode Yes, this episode is dedicated to being as realistic as possible. So there's no non-diegetic music. There are a lot of long takes, which Whedon has always um, used long takes throughout his work, but they're not showy Mm -hmm. uh, in this episode. They are all to – because a cut – breaks the spell of the moment. And so there are several long takes, um, including in the first act. And I, and I think it would be best to kind of discuss this episode act to act to act, because yeah. each one is very much its own kind of self-contained little stage play. Yeah, I agree. Um, so once we get past that first scene with the heartbreaking mom, mom, mommy hmm. uh, delivery from Sarah Michelle Geller. Uh, once we get into the episode proper, um, the very first thing that we see is a flashback. Um, just one of a couple like really brutal kind of cuts that the episode makes. Yes. Um, so this flashback is like, it's almost like, oh, the cold open was just a fantasy. Yeah. You know, now we're back. Oh, they're having uh, Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. Um, and it's not the only time in this act that Whedon pulls that trick, but it's very much, it puts us in Buffy's frame of mind of in, in the, the immediacy of this moment, she is doing everything she can to, to like wish it away. Um, and so we have this you know, cute little flashback where everybody's having dinner together. There's banter. Anya uh, tells everyone that Santa Claus is real. Only he did some bowels children. Uh, we've got all this cute, typical fun, uh, very weed-esque hangout. Um, and then Buffy and Joyce go into the kitchen. And actually one thing that I thought was interesting in the commentary is that Whedon says he thinks it was a mistake in hindsight to have Joyce in the kitchen. 
he he if he could go back and do it again he says that he would have the scene open with her coming back from the kitchen and have her be a constant presence throughout the scene instead of you know she's kind of there at the beginning and then oh i see she's in the kitchen with buffy at the end yeah um but i i almost I don't know. To second guess his second guessing, um, <laughs> I, I think if Joyce were a constant presence throughout the scene, that would almost call more attention to itself than this flashback, because this is very normal, very typical Buffy stuff. And I think if the focus had been on Joyce uh, from the opening frame, then I, that kind of immediately clues you into the fact yeah, that... Yeah, we, we would have known something was up. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I, yeah. I, I just I want to jump in here i don't know if uh he mentions this in the um commentary strangely enough in recording this podcast i have never listened to the com to the commentaries on any of the episodes so i don't know if he mentions it there but i do know that joss has said that uh one of the re like the the technical reason that he we come back from the opening credits uh to that weird christmas flashback uh was specifically so there were no titles playing over the EMT scene or the, you know, the scenes of the dead body. Um, yes. He wanted that to be completely removed from, like I said, the trappings of a television episode, which would include the, the uh, starring cast <laughs> credits or whatever that are still rolling after the opening credits are done. But yeah. So, so that, you know, that's another way that this feels like a very normal episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And then when Buffy is in the kitchen with Joyce and they're, they're trying to trying and failing to cut this burnt pie, uh, they drop the pie and there's an immediate harsh, just brutal cut to Joyce's dead body on the couch. And this leads to um, the first of the long takes and maybe the most... Uh, impressive of them yeah it's it's my favorite which is just what buffy does in the immediate aftermath um and so when my mom passed away i am so thankful that i did not have to i didn't have to go through this specific experience that buffy has um i found out my mom was dead at the hospital after I got to the hospital. So I didn't have to deal with, with what do I, you know, there's a whole yeah. other set set of what, what do I do questions, but I didn't have to deal with this. Right. And what Buffy has to deal with and possibly what Joss Whedon had to deal with when his mother died. I don't know the specific circumstances around his mother's death. Um, and I, I'm not even sure. I'd be curious to find out, how old he was when his mom died because later on Tara tells Buffy that she was 17 when her mom died. And that's just such a very specific line of dialogue that I'm wondering if that was drawn from his own life. Yeah. But I'm not sure. I, um, I, I know she died of, uh, of a cerebral hemorrhage hemorrhage. Uh, yeah. Just so like, just I, like I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure I even knew that. Um, so, so yeah, so Buffy in the immediate aftermath, what do you do? You know, uh, it's, it's just heartbreaking and horrifying, uh, to watch her. You know, you, you have the, 
the instinctual reaction that anyone would have where you run in, you 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 shake her, you try to wake her up, and then she calls the paramedics. And what I what I love about how she calls 911 and when the paramedics arrive is that Buffy is always in the foreground. Um, and the, the 911 operator is just this distant voice. And when the paramedics do arrive, we rarely really see them fully in frame. Even when the paramedic, uh, the one paramedic who has to tell Buffy with finality that her mom is dead, even when he is filling up most of the frame, we don't ever really see his full face. Right. There's a great shot where um, it's a relatively simple shot, but uh, Buffy is in like, she's to the left of the frame and the paramedics back fills up like 75% of the frame. And Buffy is just kind of squeezed in there. She's just so small and so vulnerable as this hulking presence dominates the frame, telling her that her mother is dead. So I, I've not yet been called upon to go through this specific circumstance of losing a parent like this, but um, I, I've, I've had enough traumatic moments in my life, and and I've experienced this sort of this uh, disjointed sort of out of phase with reality uh, kind of experience, and I sometimes take issue with the way that film and television deals with people who are high or whatever, like the, the sort of camera tricks that filmmakers use to show what it's like for someone to be stoned out of their mind or whatever. Sometimes that's handled better by some filmmakers than others. But I just feel like this, um, uh, the way that Whedon demonstrates, not just Buffy's, but everybody's uh, kind of disconnection from reality or the, the way their, their mind just will not focus on what's happening. Uh, is just super poignant and and Whedon loves the phrase emotional realism this is very emotionally real I feel like the the fact yeah. that people come in and out of frame and in and out of focus and and like we only see the guy's mouth and chest when he's delivering the the news and one of my favorite things about um, the the whole episode actually but particularly this opening scene uh, this first act is the the use of sound. Um, yes. Like you said, there's no diegetic music. There's no incidental music throughout the entire episode, but uh, what there is, um, is an incredible use of sound. Um, like particularly after the paramedics leave, um, and she is just kind of wandering aimless through the house. Uh, she walks uh, back towards the kitchen and we hear wind chimes blowing in an open window, uh, which is kind of superimposed over her, throwing up uh so we get those two sounds mixed together and then she goes to the back door and opens it and um very importantly very significantly does not cross the threshold she opens the front and back door actually in act one and she never steps across the threshold yeah um but when she opens the back door we hear uh children playing in the distance like neighborhood kids playing in the distance we hear the sound of the ocean in the distance, which is something that uh, has never happened. We never hear from her house before, before this or after this. Yeah. Um, just the way that uh, 
they use sound to uh, signify that life is proceeding as usual for other people, uh, and it just heightens Buffy's sense of loss and unreality. So. It's the it's the wind chimes I think that get to me. Mm-hmm. Just the wind chimes gently tinkling in the background, which just completely undercuts the the magnitude of the horror that Buffy is going through at the at the moment. Um, and y- you mentioned how the way that Whedon focuses on Buffy's lack of focus, how powerful that is. The first cut that we get in the long take is a super close up of the phone in her hand. And he says that they actually had to shoot that with a special lens so that it wasn't just a close up of the phone, but a hyper realistic super detailed close-up of the phone that, you know, captures as silly as it is to kind of, you know, analyze that really captures the clarity of the image of the phone in her hand. Um, And, you know, that's when she, she gets back on the phone, hangs up in the operator. She calls Giles. Um, There's another cut when uh, after she throws up, she, places a paper towel over the vomit Mm -hmm. and this image has been burned into my brain ever since the very first time i watched this episode i can't really think of any other tv show especially a network show that just has a couple of close-ups of the main characters vomit soaking through a paper towel so i uh to prep for this episode, uh, I watched this three times over the last two days. Um, all three times, um, that scene of her like putting the paper towel down and the vomit soaking through it, all three times I've expected there to be some sort of Rorschach image in that. Like the camera focuses on it for such a long period of time that it almost seems like there's some sort of significance that's going to come from the image of the, of it slowly soaking through the paper towel. I mean, you know, what was it that Freud said? Sometimes a pile of vomit is just a pile of vomit. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then, and then Giles shows up and yes, Giles shows up thinking that glory has arrived at the house, thinking that there's, you know, the typical supernatural danger and I think that's the real that's that's one of the real shocks of this episode that Joyce dies not from, you know, a vampire or a demon or some kind of otherworldly monster. She has a brain aneurysm and dies on the couch mm-hmm. for a show that has always dealt in tragedy from you know from season one on uh this show and angel have not held back in dealing with uh mortality and tragedy um this is the most mundane and yet the most devastating instance of that yeah and uh we'll get to it when we when we talk about the fourth act the final act of the episode but um the 
it is so removed from the usual sort of supernatural trappings that we associate with Buffy the Vampire Slayer that it almost feels supernatural. We're five right. seasons into this show and we take these the supernatural elements of the series just for granted at this point. Um, and even even when Xander uh, in the next act, uh, I think it's the next act, or maybe it's the third, is uh, talking about um, how are we sure that it was natural? Because, you know, Glory's out there or whatever. He's looking, he, he's doing what the, the audience is doing, what us as viewers are doing. He's He's assuming that there must be something to this. This can't just be... In fact, he even says, uh, Willow says, you know, it just happened. And he's like, stuff doesn't just happen. Right. So. Except for sometimes it does just happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the second, third, and fourth acts all open on a shot of Joyce's wide-eyed corpse, um, which is... Uh, a, a super rough choice to make uh, as far as transition scenes go. And that's all Christine Sutherland, by the way. Yeah. That's that's not a dummy or a prosthetic, uh, which had been my assumption initially, because I know on Six Feet Under, whenever they had scenes in the morgue, um, except for when, you know, like a body would start talking like a fantasy scene or whatever, um, Whenever they had the characters in the morgue, they always just did like a uh, a plaster of that actor's head and, you know, created a dummy. No, this was all Christine Sutherland. Uh, eight days of shooting, she just had to, to lie there wide-eyed. Which is particularly um, impressive in that first act when Buffy uh, runs over to her body and, and is shaking her, trying to, to rouse her. And right. she just has to hold her her dead expression and her open eyes uh, without flinching or blinking. And, you know, she has to, it's a common thing in TV where you can't telegraph something like, you know, if someone is coming behind, behind you to, to hit you as the actor in that moment, you have to, you have to pretend not to know that's about to happen. Yeah. Um, And in a way, I think this is, almost the opposite of that because she has to completely free herself of all reaction. You know, as Sarah Michelle Geller is shaking her, she, she cannot act as though that's, that's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really impressive. And the only, the, as, as far as I know, the only sort of effect that they did there is they, they had to, they had to remove her pulse like in her neck or whatever for sustained shots. Um, Okay. I, the one other effect they had to do not in that scene, but I think, uh, it might be in the last overhead shot of her. Um, she on set, she blinked and they had to digitally uh, remove that. Okay. But that was the only time they had to do that. Yeah. Think about that. Eight days of, of shooting. (laughs) And at least in the stuff that they used in the episode, they only had to remove, one instance of her blinking. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, it is. It's uh, remarkable. Um, all right. So the second act. Yeah. So we've seen how Buffy responds in the moment to finding Joyce dead. And now we see what happens 
when Dawn finds out about it. And after that cut uh, of Joyce, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, the second act opens with the um, the coroner is cutting open her shirt. Is that right? No, it's uh, they're zipping her up into the body bag. Okay. Okay. And, and, right. and actually the sound of the zip. So the, so not only does each act begin with uh, a shot of, of Joyce's face, um, but there's also no sound until one sound comes in. And in that one, it's, it's uh, no pun intended. It's dead silent uh, until the zipper starts moving. And that's the only sound you hear. And then when it cuts from that to Dawn, who's crying and we'll find out why in a second, but uh, the zipper sound continues over into that next scene. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Uh, real quick to go back to the first act. I meant to, to mention this because I have not had that specific experience of coming home to find someone dead. I don't, no, but would paramedics really leave a dead body there? I I wondered about that. That I, doesn't seem that does that that does not seem in I, the moment. You know, when you're watching this, it doesn't occur to you. But if you've seen it a bunch of times, like I have, and can kind of approach it with a little bit of distance, that really seems unrealistic. The only way I excuse that is um, the they do get a radio call, like they they get a call to go to another uh, there's, there's a body in a street or whatever, or there's been an accident. I don't remember the details, but so they are actually trying to get to another scene. Um, But yeah, even so on this rewatch, I was like, are they really just going to say, sorry, your mom's dead. And then, and then leave. (laughs) That's exactly what they do. Yeah. Um, and, And the one other thing I meant to mention when Buffy is giving her, trying to give her CPR, she cracks the rib. Mm, yeah. And the sound of that rib cracking yeah. and just every time cuts right through me. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But to, to go to this second act, so after we cut from uh, Joyce, the, from the body bag being unzipped in the morgue, uh, we cut to Dawn crying. And so, of course, we think it's because her mom is dead. But then we find out, oh, no, this is actually much worse. She doesn't know yet. And we are going to get to see what happens when she finds out. So, I, so I love yeah. the I love the decision to play it this way, because we get before we get to that moment, before we get to the the reveal where Dawn learns the truth, uh, we get a little microcosm of Dawn as the as what a lot of fans up to this point and and a lot of fans even after this point uh, think of the character of Dawn that she's just the annoying teenager. So she's crying because of some, uh, you know, teenage politics where a boy called her a freak or whatever. And she thinks that's just the worst thing in the world. Um, And then when she goes back to her class, uh, she's in a great mood because there's a boy that she likes that she actually gets to stand next to and have a conversation with. So we just get a couple examples of um, teenage, you know, junior high life. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's just normal stuff. It's mm-hmm. the kind of normal stuff that is happening oftentimes when someone finds out that someone they love has died. And I really like that because, one, we get to see that Don has friends. 
right. uh, yeah. which I feel like we don't get to see very often in the show. And when we do, they're either super annoying or lead to like a super annoying storyline. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, like, like I, I'm trying to think the only other time, I mean, besides the, the one girl that turns out to be a potential in season seven, um, the only other time I can really think that they do something like this is in the season seven premiere lessons um where you know it's like don and her like two high school buddies and it's like this is the potential spinoff um <laughs> i forgot and, about that it, and, and it's it's not very convincing isn't there an episode uh is it is it in this season or season six isn't there an episode where she like uh sneaks out on a date and don't we see one of her friends on in that episode Oh, that sounds right. Yeah, but I don't remember. It, it, in any case, this is the most, I think, the most convincing and the best example of Don as just a normal high schooler. Yeah. You know, some, some, like you said, some boy called her a freak, and that's like the worst thing ever. Um, but then we get to see them in art class, and it's it's very significant, the 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 class that they're in when this happens mm -hmm. and it's almost so obvious that it could be heavy handed, but I don't think the episode ever really, uh, it, it ends on a shot of her easel, but I don't think it ever becomes pretentious because it's just, go ahead. The, uh, there are, there are a couple things. There are a couple decisions that Joss makes in this episode that I think in any other show, and possibly even in most other episodes of this series would come across as heavy handed. And maybe some of the stuff in the art class, the, the, the shot of the, the artwork on the easel, the, the whole conversation about negative space and that kind of stuff, it could potentially be heavy handed or, or pedantic or whatever. But, um, and there's a couple things like that in this episode, but none of them bother me within the, the way this episode plays out in the context of the episode. And, and I don't know, it's, it's still emotionally real to me. So the, you know, Buffy um, and any of the, the Josh shows have always been, you know, very conventional sci-fi and fantasy stuff, but done really artistically. In in some episodes that calls more attention to itself than others, like um, the season four finale, Restless, mm -hmm. is you know a Lynchian dreamscape, um, and I think this episode more than anything else he's done is really this is what it would be like if Joss Whedon directed an art film. <laughs> um, I, mean, I mean, it really well, is. we've seen him do an art film now, but well that's true but that's i mean that was i, I don't know that i i love i love much ado about nothing yeah. but this is you know like the capital a art film um and the the framing of that the, the classroom sequence the fact that they are you know trying to sketch this statue of a female body and the teacher is talking about negative space um and then like i said it ends on a shot of don's sketch which is largely negative space surrounding the body i think that really that works for me because that's what the episode is about it's about the negative space mm -hmm. it's about when, the joyce shaped hole left in everybody's life 
exactly. Yeah. When someone is gone, um, what 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 is there? What's left? What still exists? And I love the decision to you know Buffy comes to class, pulls Don out of class, and Don knows immediately that something is wrong. Like Don's been around you know all of the supernatural shenanigans before. You know even though this is the first season that we've seen her, you know. Presumably, she has been around in her memory, um, you know, when when uh, Angel killed Jenny and stuff like that. So she's been around the supernatural. I mean, in the in the last episode, and I was made to love you. She gets an off when they find out it's a robot. Um, Dawn gets to say, "Like Ted." So okay, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but you know, she's used to that stuff. But Buffy's never showed up to pull her out of school. Mm-hmm especially not on a day when Joyce is supposed to pick her up. And so she immediately knows without having to be told what has happened, but she's still, she's in in that moment. She's, she's trying just like Buffy did with um, the, the, the fantasy sequence of Joyce, you know, coming to and saying, thank God you found me in time. Mm. Um, you know, Dawn in that moment is having her own like she doesn't know yet. It's like it's like it's like Schrodinger's Joyce. She it, it, the words have not been said. Right. So Joyce might be dead, but she might not be. And until Buffy says those words, she can pretend that Joyce isn't. And I really love the choice for us not to hear when Buffy actually tells her. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If the. If the first act felt like uh, dealt with sort of the isolation and loneliness that Buffy felt by um, not showing us the outside world, like she never steps across the threshold, the the camera never gives us an establishing shot of the house, the camera never leaves the house, it never leaves Buffy's perspective. Um, the second act, uh, I love the um, the fact that. Buffy and Dawn share that moment um, on the other side of a window. Um, we can just sort of barely hear a muffled conversation and Dawn's breakdown, and we're experiencing it. Uh, we, we get that sense of isolation and loss and loneliness, but this time it's because we are seeing it from other people's perspective, but we're still at a remove. Right. And, you know, the the... <laughs> the sad thing is, so it op- the, the, this act opens with Dawn crying because so, some somebody called her a freak. Well, now her whole class just saw her, you know, crumple to the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, you know, that this episode never gets into it, and I don't think it's ever brought up in a, in a future episode. But I mean, that kids are mm-hmm. that probably, you know, I, I'm sure that some of her classmates used her ultimate moment of weakness as another uh another target um but i so my experience with my mom passing away like i said not like what buffy goes through in the first act um a little bit more like what dawn is going through um i was obviously older i was i was well out of high school Um, but I was just out having what I thought was a normal day. And for a while, I really struggled with the guilt of that, of, you know, I was just 
going about my day like it was normal, even though um, I had gotten a, a call earlier that my mom um, had, you know, was having trouble breathing and was being taken to the hospital. I didn't, my mom was uh, in and out of the hospital uh, toward the end of her life. And so when I got that phone call, I, was, I, I, I really, I, really, really struggle with intense feelings of guilt for quite a while. And I, I think I've mostly kind of accepted it at this point, but I was, my general reaction was just like, okay, that's, you know, let, keep me updated. Right. Let, let me, let me know how she's doing. Um, but then when I got the call that, um, you need to come to the hospital right now, I was kind of put in that frame of mind that Dawn is in where the words have not been said. And I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure I know what this means. And so um, I just have this distinct memory of uh, my wife and I, who wasn't my wife at the time, uh, we got to the hospital and I just remembered that that the hallway that I was walking down felt like the longest hallway in the universe. It felt like that journey was never going to end. And I just remember thinking that whole time, I, I know that I'm walking, that I'm going to walk in to find out that my mom is dead. You know, I, I, I knew that I had that conscious thought, but it still wasn't real. And then, and, and I apologize for anyone listening. I, I, I know that some of you may not be familiar with me or with Gobbledy Geek, where we've talked a lot about this stuff in the past. So I apologize if this is kind of intruding on, on Buffy uh, analysis, but I, I, I do want to, to share some of this stuff because I, I just want to kind of relate how intensely this episode of the show reflects my experience. Um, so in any case, uh, I remember walking into the uh the consultation room they called it uh to see my dad and i just remember in in that moment he looked at me and he said uh did they tell you and i and i again it's one of those things where just like don knows i knew but i still had to ask i was like tell me what dad Hmm. And that's that's when he told me. And I had, let me tell you, the the exact reaction that Dawn has, where she just falls to the floor, sobbing. That is exactly the response. It was like, it was this immediate physical reaction. Like it was almost like the world, the world stopped. Gravity failed to work. Um, or, or I guess gravity was working overtime uh, because I just I, I hit the floor. Mm. Um, and so seeing Don go through that, though Don is you, I mean you alluded to this Don's not necessarily a fan favorite character. Um, I like Don, I think better than a, a lot of people do, but she's not one of my favorite characters. But because of what I went through, her reaction, to finding out that Joyce is dead might almost hit me the hardest um, 
out of anything in this episode with, with maybe a, a notable exception coming in the next act. Um, yeah, but Michelle Trachtenberg, I feel like doesn't often get singled out for her performance. Um, but she is absolutely tremendous in this episode. Um, I, com- that, that... I completely agree. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm famous for defending the indefensible characters on this show, <laughs> including Dawn and Riley. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm super impressed with her acting ability. When they let her, when they give her a chance to actually show how good an actress she is, I think she does a great job. Uh, I mean, she I think she um, unfairly kind of the people get caught up on that that get out, get out, get out. They get they get stuck on that moment, which, which, which having I, having just rewatched that episode for the podcast recently, that even that moment, that moment is only silly to me now because of the reaction that fans had to it. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. But she she is really genuinely good. And I don't I you know, this is not the only episode where she's magically good. I think she is really good throughout the whole show. But I think this scene, this this whole act really is maybe the best acting that she does on the show um she she is fantastic mm-hmm. um one other little detail that i th- speaking of the you know the trials and tribulations of don summers um in the way that the show takes these really supernatural things and turns it into really mundane stuff um that that cute boy that she's talking with um asks her like didn't i remember that like you you know you cut yourself or mm-hmm. something and of course, we know the the, the heightened reality uh, behind that scene, where you know she takes that huge ass knife and like just cuts open her arm mm-hmm. because which, she wants which to... that is my favorite Dawn scene. I mean that that is a great scene, but I kind of like that at school that's just become oh that girl's a cutter, right? Yeah, you know I so I I kind of I kind of like that. I, I liked that moment because it was super brief, obviously. It gets interrupted almost immediately, but that's a moment where she's she gets all defensive and tries to, to explain it away, and he's like, I felt like that before. And there's just like six seconds where Dawn gets to feel like, uh, oh, this he's he's going to be okay with this. This is someone I might be able to talk to. Yeah. Yeah. And we never see him again. Nope, that never happens. Bye, guy. Bye. I think I think Kevin. I think his name was Kevin. Kevin. Oh, um, Kevin. We oh, hardly knew you. Exactly. He's a vampire by now, I'm sure. <laughs> he probably is. <laughs> Wouldn't it be super messed up if uh, if he had been the vampire at the end? <laughs> yes. Yeah. That would have been Boy, too much. That would that would that would have been too much. But man, that would that would have thrown her for a loop. Yeah. Um. So, bef- we're about to switch to the third act, but let me just since you told about your experience at the hospital. Is this the first time since your mother passed that you've watched this? It is. Okay. Yeah. I, I, um, I don't know what point it occurred to me, but I mean, (laughs) relatively shortly after my mom passed away, I remember having the thought, well, I'm never going to be able to watch the body again. You know, if I, (laughs) whenever I go back into Buffy, uh, I'm just, I'm not going to be able to watch that episode. So like you said at the top of the show, you kept giving me outs mm-hmm. to, to not do this. Um, and I kept pushing it off. Like you texted me last night, like, did you survive? And I texted back, haven't watched it yet. Um, so I watched it at five o'clock this morning 
I watched it first thing this morning and I was I was low key terrified to watch it uh but I it was interesting I think because enough time had passed like I said almost three years um enough time had passed that and I think because I had built it up so much in my head that I was able to really approach it kind of academically, like knowing that I was watching it to have this discussion. Maybe if I if I had just gotten to it in a regular rewatch, I wouldn't have been ready for it. But I think because I knew going into it that like, oh, I'm going to have this quasi-academic conversation with my buddy Paul about this episode, that I was able to kind of approach it more from a distance. Um, so I did not weep either time I watched this episode, which wow. is, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's something I, there were absolutely moments where I got chills. Um, the moment that got me the most, um, we, uh, we'll get to later. Um, but there were moments where I got chills or tears welled up, but I mean, talk to my grief counselor in a couple of weeks, but, uh, <laughs> but I, think, I think I came through relatively unscathed. Well, I'm impressed. I, I, I'm, I'm impressive. Sure. I, I, I did not. <laughs> so in fact, the, the, my second watch last night, um, I rewatched it cause, uh, Pam was watching a show that, uh, that I am not watching. And I was like, Oh, well I'll just put on headphones and rewatch, um, the body. So I'll, I'll be that much more prepared for the podcast tomorrow. So Pam is sitting over here watching a show that apparently is funny because she's cracking up and I'm sitting right next to her watching the body with just tears flowing down my face, sniffling and choking. And yeah, it must've been quite a sight. Yeah. Oh my God. That's almost even more like upsetting that. So you've got your headphones on and your wife is just over there like laughing up a storm. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like that makes it to me even more surreal. Yeah, it was like a moment from the episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So now let's move into uh, act three. Uh, act three is the one that opens with um, the coroner cutting off the, the snip of the scissors as they cut off her clothing, which it, I can't believe I never made that connection um, that of course this is the act that opens with them cutting open Joyce's shirt because it's the act where Willow can't decide what shirt to wear. Yeah. Um, damn. I think my mind just got blown. <laughs> There's still discoveries to be made. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, this is the act where uh, we get to see the rest of the Scoobies because mm-hmm. we've, we've seen Giles and Dawn, but Giles is a, He's the father figure who has his own relationship with Joyce. And then Donna is Buffy's sister, of course. But now we actually we get to see the rest of the family, the 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 chosen family, the surrogate family. Yeah, right. Um, and it's very it's very interesting to see how everyone reacts to this situation. And before we get into exactly how everyone reacts, I want to ask you, because it has been a number of years since I went back through the show and maybe my memory has just been, uh, you know, warped, but was Joyce a particularly good or beloved mother before she died? I, I can't remember. I, by, I remember yeah, go by ahead. who me or the characters? 
<laughs> yeah, anyone, I guess. I, I struggled for a while with Joyce on the on the rewatch. I struggled with her in the earliest seasons because the show leans so heavily on the annoying, clueless parent right. uh, trope. Uh, but once she got led into the the world of slayers and all that stuff, she once she got more comfortably integrated into the storyline, um, I warmed up tremendously to Joyce. Um, okay. As for the characters, I feel like. Um, the extended Scooby gang, they all have their own family issues. Uh, like right. Xander famously has a terrible family. Oh, yeah. um, Willow, we, we only ever see her mother and only for one episode. Um, In which her mother is um... trying to burn her at the stake. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but we've, I think we've heard that her father is not the greatest. And then um, Anya or yeah, we don't know anything about Anya's family at this point, but uh, well, because they died centuries and centuries ago yeah uh, 1200 years ago um and then tara has her family issues so um i don't know how much we could count joyce as sort of a surrogate parent for anya and tara since they're both newer uh but certainly over the years uh i think that willow and xander sort of came to accept um joyce as their other mother Okay. I, I think that I, because it has been a while since I've gone back through the show, my, I most remember the, the annoying clueless kind of judgmental mm-hmm. Joyce. And so I had kind of forgotten if she actually became a, a, a beloved character, but okay. Okay. Uh, so now that that's cleared up, which everyone else who's been listening along is like, duh, Arlo, maybe if you, you know, hadn't bailed on the podcast before it started. Anyway. Um, oh, snap. So we've talked about that on another episode. Um, so it's it's interesting to see how everyone reacts because everyone reacts to grief and loss differently, especially if if it's someone that you know, but it's not like – you know, it's not your mom, mm-hmm. you know, how, what, what do you do for the other person? And so Willow becomes hung up on what shirt to wear. Um, you know, she, you know, one shirt, she looks too cheerful. That would be rude. Another one, you know, Oh, purple is the Royal color. What, how arrogant would that be if she showed up wearing purple? Um, so she, you know, changes a million times throughout this scene um and allison hannigan is just man so so incredible throughout the run of the show and so incredible here just the way that the the number of emotions that she she goes through in this one scene is just incredible um uh i i I think I read again, this may be something that he mentions in the commentary. So you can, you can tell us, but um, I think I read somewhere where Joss was saying that, you know, they, they, he Joss continued to be blown away by Alison Hannigan because they, you know, shot the scene multiple times to get different angles or different takes. And every single time she was able to bring that level of like emotional devastation. And he was like, and every time we filmed that scene, uh, we were behind the cameras all crying along with her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She, you know, when, when Willow cries, everyone cries Yeah, yeah. and she, she's tremendous. And I, I feel this way about a lot of actors who have been on Whedon shows. I feel like most things that Hannigan has done since this have not tapped into her skill set. Absolutely. 
Um, you know, because I, I liked her on How I Met Your Mother, but she, you know, it, it was a fine performance. <laughs> um, but uh, so uh, my wife and I are revisiting Veronica Mars right now, uh, leading up to the, the new stuff, which we haven't seen yet. Um, and uh, Allison Hannigan pops up as Lily Kane. And she's just not very convincing as the, the spoiled rich girl um charisma carpenter also shows up in the same season and she appears more frequently um but she is um she's extremely convincing because she's basically playing you know cordelia you know early cordelia <laughs> um but you know it's just it it was another one of those things where uh again it's been a while since i've watched the the whole run of buffy so i was watching her you know on veronica mars and i'm like it, is allison hannigan not not as good as I had remembered. Um, but then, you know, I watched something like this, like, no, she really is. No one else really knows what to do with her. Yeah. I, I don't, I, you're right. It's with so many of the actors from Whedon's shows. Um, but uh, Alison Hannigan seems like one of the big, <laughs> like one of the biggest losses. <laughs> her, her and Sarah Michelle Gellar. Honestly, yeah, yeah. or at least Allison Hannigan has done, you know, some some good things since Buffy. Uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar has just been thoroughly wasted by the entire industry. Yeah, I mean, there's really no other way to put it. But in any case, back to this episode. Yeah. Both of them are phenomenal in it. Um, Allison Hannigan is phenomenal in this scene, as is Amber Benson. Um, Amber, and... Amber Benson. Um, I mean. We'll discuss this here in just a moment when we get to another character's breakthrough moment in the in the episode. But um, for my money, uh, Tara is kind of the is is one of the big things for me in this episode. Um, in just the way she deals with this, uh, in the next act, we get the scene where Buffy says, "Sorry, you have to deal with this," which is we'll talk about that. That's a super powerful moment to me, but. Um, just watching Amber Benson play this character who should feel completely lost and, and out of place because she is, she's the newbie. Um, but I, she, she has such a, a confidence, even when she's doing her terrible fake stutter, she, she portrays such a confidence in this moment that because she's been through this and she, she knows what the people need. And she, she uh, gives that great, line to Xander where she all she says is it hurts after he puts his fist through the wall yeah yeah no she's great and she very much she's playing the role Tara is playing the role of the supportive girlfriend mm -hmm. you know in the situation who is not really um, like you said she's newer to the group so she doesn't necessarily have that personal connection to Joyce but Willow and the others do and so Tara's role in this is to sort of you know be there and be supportive and be the calm anchor. And that, that is exactly what she is. And to, to again, relate it to my experience, that's, that's how my wife was for me. The way that Tara is for Willow in this episode is how my wife was for me, just completely selfless and calm and patient. And to have someone like that, in your life when something this horrible happens is, is a miracle. Yeah. Uh, Cause you know, not, not everybody has someone like that. And I can't imagine having to go through something uh, 
w- without my wife by my side. And so Tara plays that role for Willow. Um, and it's just, it's, it's really lovely to see. And this is the episode where Willow, we see Willow and Tara kiss for the first time. Which even having just <laughs> rewatched this series up to this point, uh, it still surprised me. Like, obviously I've seen every episode and they, we've never seen them kiss. But when I was, uh, sort of researching this episode, I was like, oh yeah, that was their first kiss. <laughs> yeah. You know, in, in 2019, watching this episode, it did not even register to me that they kissed. Yeah. You know, as that being something special or unique, but that was a really big deal. Yeah. At the time, um, Whedon got a lot of pushback mm-hmm. from the WB for that. And the WB doesn't exist anymore. So booyah. Um, <laughs> But uh, and, and if they were going to kiss, um, the WB wanted it to be something they could market. Yeah, which uh, I don't remember how this came about, but um, I, I do know that Joss ultimately gives them credit for the fact that it went unadvertised. Yeah, like they yeah. they didn't end up making a big deal out of uh, because, like you you alluded to earlier, Joss has always said he was never going to do a very special episode of Buffy and. Uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s, anytime same-sex couples would kiss on a TV show, it became a very special episode. Right, exactly. And uh, the network uh, told him that, the, I don't know what words they used, but basically, there are too many gay characters on our network. <laughs> so, so, so we don't want them to kiss. And it was the one time that Joss Whedon threatened to quit Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Hmm. He said that he would quit the show if they would not let them kiss in the episode. And so they let them kiss and it was not marketed. It was not advertised as the lesbian kiss episode or whatever. Um, So have you, have you, uh, have you read where Amber Benson says that um, they, that her and Alison Hannigan kissed about a hundred times while they were, filming that scene she, no i haven't she alluded to the fact that it wasn't necessary like it wasn't that they were trying to get it right they just they were setting up for that scene and so they just kept kissing <laughs> she was like even though we're okay. both even though we're both you know uh heterosexual uh it was very nice so okay hey look at that i mean i don't i don't <laughs> I, don't, I don't blame either one of them um and this is something I didn't know, thanks to Wikipedia. Uh, you guys may have already covered this uh, during your fourth season discussion, but uh, I never knew that they did not intend Willow and Tara to become romantically involved when they first introduced Tara. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I can't remember how much we talked about that. We just recently talked about the fact that apparently for a period of time, I don't know how long a period of time, but at one point the writers we're actually considering pairing Willow and Spike. Oh, in this, I mean, I, I can see them kind of laying the groundwork for that. Yeah. And this whole build up to Spike's kind of redemption arc, they, they thought they were going to put the two of them together. So. Interesting. I don't know that I'd heard that. I do know that at one point they considered making Xander gay, which may have redeemed that character. Mm, yeah. May have uh, undone some of the, uh, uh, less redeeming things about Xander Harris, but uh, oh well. It's been a while since we've bagged on Xander Harris on the podcast. He's <laughs> he's been a he's been a more enjoyable character uh, in seasons four and five. 
Well, as I said, when uh, I was last on the show, Xander is a character that I heavily, heavily identified with when I was younger, so much so that any time someone criticized him, I was like, well, you must be watching a different show. It's only now with some time and distance that I go back and I watch the show and I'm like, oh, yeah, I still did heavily identify with Xander. That probably wasn't a good thing. (laughs) Uh, Well, Uh, and of course, it, it's Xander who lashes out physically in this episode, mm-hmm. uh, punching a hole through the wall of uh, Willow and Tara's apartment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, but then there's that that lovely shot of uh, well, hold on. First, we, we have to get to the the moment yeah leading up to that yeah, which might be the centerpiece of the episode. Which it surprises me to to find out that Joss was surprised by that. Apparently, Joss didn't realize that fans were going to like this moment as much as they did. Yeah, yeah. He mentions that in the commentary, that he was kind of taken aback with uh, the response to this scene. Uh, But Anya's response to Joyce's death becomes perhaps the most heartbreaking response in the episode, um, which is ironic considering that Anya is a centuries old vengeance demon who has, you know, sent men to their deaths and everything. But that's what makes it such a stunning moment. She's been a vengeance demon for 1200 years. She has lost any and all concept of, of mortality. She literally doesn't know what death is to her. You know, when, when somebody wishes for their their boyfriend or husband or whatever to be plagued with something that'll probably kill them, it's an abstract concept. It's haha, the man is getting his comeuppance. Um, she hasn't had to deal with death in a really, really long time, and so she she doesn't know she doesn't have uh, the necessary tact about it, which is typical for Anya, but this is different. It's not being played for laughs. It, all of the questions that she's asking, you know, what are we expected to do? Will they cut open the body? These make the other characters very, very uncomfortable because these are the things that everyone is asking themselves, but custom dictates we're not supposed to say out loud. Um, and so Anya then has this remarkable monologue where she expresses the 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 overwhelming confusion of the whole experience like um that she cannot understand that joyce just will never you know her body won't pick itself back up again and she won't get to experience things again she won't get to drink fruit punch or brush her hair she is gone and of the many wonderful things about that moment from uh, Whedon's dialogue to uh, Emma Caulfield's just stunning performance. Um, the really great thing about that is it, uh, it underscores the fact that no one else knows either. Mm. She's just the only one who s- says it out loud. She, it, in that moment, she gets to be the, the child um, which is not meant, uh, I don't say that to be negative. She's the innocent. She's the child who is unfiltered enough to ask questions that everybody is thinking. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's just this incredible moment. And I, I love her delivery of that so much because it, it, uh, she starts off on that monologue uh, and you can hear a breakdown in her voice. You can hear her voice crack. Uh, and I think I read that they, they, when they were miking the characters, when they were miking for this, when they were setting up for sound, um, they would put the mics much closer to the actors than they typically did because they wanted to catch the actors, uh, their voices breaking and the, the ragged breathing and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But so she starts off the monologue kind of fighting back tears and then there's a moment where she gets angry when she's talking about you know it's it's stupid it's mortal and stupid and you can hear her being upset and then she goes back to confused and it ends on being on, on her you know her voice rising and cracking as she's fighting back tears again um and uh whedon really worked with caulfield uh to make sure that she ended on her her voice rising and kind of cracking again because he wanted to sell the fact that she had kind of reverted to a little girl again not in any negative way but just these kinds of experiences really render you um dumb for lack of a better word you know they mm -hmm. they they take you back to your innocent child state where nothing makes sense and you desperately want someone you want some sort of authority figure to appear and to explain it to you the closest thing to uh, a sort of humorous break in the tension that we get in this act is um, when Anya goes and sits down and uh, unknowingly, unwittingly finds the blue shirt that Willow's been looking for this entire time and just stuffs it in right. a drawer because she doesn't recognize the significance of it, which is a, yeah. very, which is a very Anya thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, Zan, like we said, Xander punches the wall and there's that remarkable shot. Another of um, just like the close up on the phone, the close up on the, the paper towel soaking up Buffy's vomit, um, the close up of Xander's hand bleeding. Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, kind of re recentering him like like, oh, this is real and this hurts and this is blood and I am still alive. Um yeah, it's just, it's just really remarkable. The whole scene is really remarkable. The whole episode yeah. is. Yeah. Um, um, and and I, I love, I mean, this is kind of a humorous note, too. Uh, they they arrive at the, uh, Anya and Xander arrive at the dorm, and Z Xander's not even thinking, you know, he just, he just parks where he parks. And Anya tries to tell him that he's double parked, um, and he just kind of looks at her like, you know, like he, she's saying typical Anya stuff. He he says, let them give me a ticket. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. He doesn't care. And so it ends. So there's an, another, uh, another kind of long take where uh, Willow runs back into the room. You know, she, she has to get one, one more shirt. She still hasn't made the right choice. And the camera uh, peers out the window down onto the street where we see Xander get ticketed. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's that's kind of funny. And that's another thing where uh, life continues on. I, I remember, um, you know, going back to work and just I kept having the thought like, I, you know, I don't really care if I screw something up or if something goes terribly wrong because, you know, my mom's still dead. Like yeah. not nothing, nothing my boss can can say or do to me 
is is going to be any worse than that. Right. Um, but life still goes on, and it's it's absurd and ridiculous that it does, but it does. Yep. Um, so let's speaking of going on, let's go into the fourth act where yes. we get the the final. Well, it's not really the final, but we get the the fourth act uh, shot of Joyce. This time she's it's after the coroner has finished his exam. So he's covering her back up with the sheet, which lets us know that this is the final act. Because now instead of seeing her face and as she's gradually being, well, I suppose in act two, we saw her zipped up into the bag. But anyways. Yeah. Um, and and this is another one of the the oneers, another one of the tracking shots as we follow the coroner um, finishing up his exam and walking out of the morgue and then walking down the hallway and meeting with the family. Which which Whedon credits to his obsession with Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, of course. Uh, at the time, because there was a, there will be a, there either was or there will be another Magnolia reference. Is it in Once More with Feeling where Xander's like, uh, tame the donut, and obey yeah. the crawler or something? Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Um. So so he obviously Whedon was obsessing over that movie around this time. Um. And he, he credits that really long take with being a, basically a rip from PTA. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's that's another thing that I wonder about the the like real life situation. So I don't think the paramedics would have left Buffy alone with her mom's body. Would the coroner come out and tell the family like, well, this is why your mom died? That didn't happen with me. Um, well, I mean, I don't know. I, I took that as being realistic, but I've not been through this uh, situation. Cause, so I don't cause, know. Cause I mean, we're, we're used to seeing those kinds of scenes. Like when somebody goes in for surgery and the doctor comes out and is like, I'm so sorry. We did everything we could. Right. Um, I just don't know. And, and maybe this is something that does happen and maybe it just didn't happen in my experience. Um, but yeah, that was that was the one other thing where I was like, hmm, I wonder if that's true to life. Um, in any case, uh, they get confirmation that Joyce simply died of a brain aneurysm. It was sudden. She would have felt a minimal amount of pain. But even as the doctor is saying this in another brilliant touch, like when Buffy was speaking with the paramedics, um, the doctor's mouth continues to move and to continue on what he's actually saying, but what Buffy hears and what we hear is, um, you know, I, I don't know the exact line of dialogue, but it's something like, uh, uh, I'm just saying what you want to hear I, so that you feel better. I, I have to lie to make you feel better. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, because that, that's another thought that you have when you lose anybody is that, you know, Oh, you're just saying this so that I feel better about this. Right. Um, and so they, uh, everyone is gathered at the hospital no one knows what to do uh so i i wanted to say um I, i've said a couple times that i have not had this exact experience i haven't had a, a like my mother has not passed away i i haven't been in this specific role before but um i i've married into a very large family and over the last 15 years i have been in this family that has seen a lot of law. I, I've been to a lot of funerals in the last 15 years. I've been in the situation that the family is in now, that the Scoobies are in now, where you were 
you're at the hospital with uh, the people who have lost a loved one or whatever. Like, so the whole, uh, do you want something to eat? Can I go eat something to eat? And the, the right. like, particularly when uh, Tara, like, puts her arm around Dawn and Dawn says, I'm really glad you're here. There is something... It was almost a deadpan delivery, and just that line, just Michelle Trachtenberg's delivery of "I'm glad you're here," and the way her face is completely blank when he, when she says it, that was so real. Like I've been, yeah, I, I I've been in the room and and had yeah. that line delivery many times in the last fifteen years. Oh yeah, yeah. I in speaking with my grief counselor, she she always says that um, one of the least helpful things you can say to someone is um well one is the obvious how are you uh-huh. like how how do you think i am you know it's terrible awful horrible um but the other is um uh i'm here for you if you need anything or let me know if you need anything um because not everyone but when most people say that it's pretty meaningless especially uh when it's the uh, let me know if you need anything, because right. then that that kind of just lets you off the hook. Like, oh, thank God, I don't have to think of you know anything to do for this person. They can just let me know. Right. Um. So a lot of times those those words are meaningless. Or certain. I know that's not the case when uh, when Tara's got her arm around Don, but you know Don's reaction is still just like it's it's a nice gesture what Tara is doing, but also in that moment it doesn't feel like anything. Right. Um, and you know, Willow, Xander and Anya, they, they want to, they want to do something for Buffy. They want to get food. So they go to the, the vending machine and they come back and she says, we panicked. And they just got an <laughs> arm full of food, yeah. which, you know, and Buffy says she's not hungry, which is funny because I remember, uh, being very hungry. Actually, again, ev- everybody, experiences these things in different ways um i remember so when i got the horrible phone call that i needed to come to the hospital i i remember exactly where uh, my wife and i were we were at pulp which is a smoothie chain i don't so if you're listening you don't have one of those that's what it is it's a smoothie chain it's really good i guess this is an ad for pulp um (laughs) but (laughs) i'll always associate it with my mother's death um nice (laughs) <laughs> but uh, we were having a smoothie and we were after that we were going to get lunch and so we hadn't gotten lunch and so hours later or whatever we leave the hospital yeah. and it's just there's this surreal feeling of like oh so now you know you, you step outside which we don't get to see in this episode but they step outside and it's just like oh i guess this is my new world that I'm walking out into. Yeah. You said su- you suddenly have to deal with the mundane act of, I have to figure out what I want to eat now. Right. And we, we kind of get a, a little of that feeling reflected earlier back in the first act when Buffy opens the door and just the harsh light on her face. And we can see how, how sickly and unwell she looks. And that's kind of what it feels like when you take that, you know, that first step out into the world after something like this. And I, we, so we were having smoothies when I got the phone call. And then I remember we, uh, we got Jimmy John's uh, (laughs) uh, as our first meal. I just remember sitting on my bed at home because I was still living with my parents when my mom died, just sitting on my bed, in my bedroom, uh, just 
eating the sandwich and it was like the most absurd ridiculous thing like my mom is dead i'm sitting here eating a sandwich yeah like it just it feels so ludicrous that that kind of thing still has to go on yeah um but uh but it's a nice moment when they try to get the vending machine food for her um and well i i want to talk about the terror the Yes. Buffy and Tara scene, when they go, when they leave to go uh, raid the vending machine, it leaves Buffy and Tara alone. And um, we're going to get another moment like this later in the series, uh, another bonding moment between Buffy and Tara. There's something about that. Um, I don't know why I like the fact that I, I guess it's just the whole seeing Tara accepted into the family like this. Uh, when she gets these solo moments to be there as support for Buffy, um, I feel like that really shows us Tara's character. Um, so, yeah. so this scene was just super powerful to me. The way, um, l- like one of the moments where my voice cracked or whatever, where I kind of like choked a little bit and the, the a tear dropped was when Buffy says they're sitting there awkwardly next next to each other, and Buffy says again something else. I've, I've experienced either personally or by proxy the the awkward uncomfortable painful way that buffy's like i'm sorry you have to be here and deal with this right uh that is just so true and so emotionally real right there and then uh i i love tara's response the fact that she's like you know you don't have to worry about me and and uh when when buffy's talking about how you know i've never I've never done this before. I've never gone through this before. That's ridiculous. Of course, I've never gone through this before. And Tara's like, I have. My mother died when I was 17. All of that stuff is super powerful to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And like you, I love whenever Tara gets to have one of those solo moments with Buffy. And I think it's, yes, it establishes the connection that Tara has with the Scoobies, but I think it's also because it's it's one of those pairings you don't really get often where it's like the best friend's significant other. Yeah. Um, and I I don't know why that's an interesting pairing because they, they because we know they they both dearly love um, the person who's not in the scene and that's what brings them together. And so I don't know I just I kind of like whenever they get to have those one-on-one interactions i mean you're right in in pop culture and maybe in maybe in real life that's not a pairing that happens particularly often i think the cliche tends to be here are two best friends one of the best friends gets married or or gets a significant other and that significant other is kind of viewed as an intruder or whatever. And right. so, so you don't typically see the significant other and the other best friend bonding. I, I don't know. That's just, it's not the usual. Right. So, right. No, you're absolutely right. Um, I know I mentioned Veronica Mars earlier and that's, that's just the example that's fresh in my mind. But in season two, when Wallace uh, gets a girlfriend played by Tessa Thompson, uh, I had forgotten that. Yes. So had I, <laughs> uh, uh, Veronica is hostile <laughs> toward her, like not friendly at all. And I mean, Jackie definitely has her issues, but, um, but yeah, that's more the typical kind of 
reaction that we get. And so I like that Buffy and Tara um, never really have that relationship where Buffy sees her as an interloper or taking her best friend away from her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's really nice. And then what happens after this is not very nice. Uh, (laughs) What what happens after that is uh, one of the sticking points that some fans have had with them, or actually maybe not the fans, some critics took issue with the way the episode ends. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Don, Don still, I, I think it, it's tough for us to remember, maybe tough for Buffy to remember because we got to see viscerally Buffy's experience with the body at the beginning, but Don still hasn't seen her mom. Mm-hmm. And so it's still not, the words have been said, she knows that it's real, but it still doesn't feel all the way real because she hasn't seen her. And so Dawn, because she's with the Scooby gang and knows where the, <laughs> how to get into the morgue, right. she, uh, she goes, but she says that she's going to go pee. Um, she goes back into the morgue instead, uh, latches the door behind her. Um, and she's trying to find her mom in this sea of cadavers that are draped with, you know, sterile clinical white sheets for and, for one brief second, I thought about being. I thought about going. Wait a minute. How did she zero in on which one was? I was like, how does she know that that one at the end of the room is her mother? They're all covered with sheets. <laughs> but, well, I'm uh, sure there's a tag or something. Because how would the coroner know? Yeah, but I mean, we don't. The camera never shows her <laughs> seeing a name or whatever. So I just, I very briefly was like, hang on. Why doesn't she uncover everybody until she finds her her mother? But. <laughs> That's, that would have been maybe a little too morbid yeah. watching Don have to look at all of these corpses. Yeah. And it would have ruined the the terror, the surprise, yeah. The yeah, of um watching the body behind them rise. So Don is in the foreground as she's about to pull off the sheet over her mother's face and then a body just sits up. And this is something that we've seen many times I, on episodes of Buffy. I was going to say that scene is brilliant in two ways. Um, so we've just watched the entire episode that has removed everything supernatural about Buffy the Vampire Slayer um, to a supernatural degree, as I've already said. And then we get to that scene that is framed so much like the typical horror shot and and like the typical Buffy shot, where, of course, there are corpses in the background. Of course, one of them is going to sit up. This is Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But no, this episode isn't going to do that. This episode hasn't been doing that. That would be totally out of place. And then it happens anyways. And so it's like the scene is kind of a horror shot twice. <laughs> Yeah. When you first yeah. see it, you're like, oh, God, this is going to be terrible. No, this episode won't do it. Oh, my God, the episode did it. And I love that it plays out very unlike any other vampire encounter in the show. He's naked, for one thing. He, he's naked. Uh, Whedon notes in the commentary that they specifically um, they the they used makeup to make him look more like just a a dead body. Right. Um, so you can really see like um, this, his skin has started to kind of change color and his, his uh, ribs are kind of more outlined. Um, and it's a very 
harsh, very physical struggle. But, you know, Buffy has physical struggles with vampires all the time, whether she's fighting them or sleeping with them. Um, (laughs) But there's, you know, there's (laughs) there's no there's no kung fu or anything like that. You know, there's no uh, wire fu or anything like that. Um, It's uh, it's just a, a tussle. A, a brief, nasty, ugly, physical confrontation. Um, and so Buffy, and there's no banter either, but you know, this show is all about the banter. Vamp, newly risen vampires and Buffy are always having like some kind of comedy routine together. Right. Uh, there's none of that here. And in the struggle, um, the sheet falls off of Joyce's face. Um, and so as this is happening, um, this is kind of how I look at it, uh, looking at it metaphorically, Don and Buffy have to extinguish this like physical manifestation of, of death, this evil, horrible specter of death in order to face the reality of their mother's death. Right. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's brutal. Buffy, yeah. Buffy winds up decapitating, uh, the guy with a, a blade. Yeah. So even not only is the fight, the way the fight happens, unusual, um, the resolution to it is unusual. Like she, it's almost always, it's still bloodless because he still turns to dust, but it's a much more graphic, gruesome way of killing the vampire than we typically see on the show. Yeah. Especially since she like, she, we get a POV shot of her struggling to push the saw yeah. through the vampire's yeah. neck. And the, the only the only false note for me is when we see the vampire dust, mm-hmm. to me that it still looks like too much of a typical Buffy shot, especially in 2019. The special effects are not very convincing. Yeah. And so it kind of breaks the spell. I almost kind of wish it had been shot in a different way or that the actual dusting had occurred if off the, camera. If the POV hadn't changed, it just dusted yeah. while we were still looking up at her. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but that's the only bum note in the scene. So you're telling me that uh, the critics don't like the way this episode ends? Well, I, most critics, I think, love the episode. Like this, this episode was um, Emmy nominated. Still not Emmy. Wait, was it Emmy nominated? I don't think it I was even nominated. So. No, there no. were people. There were a lot of critics that were saying this will finally. This is it. And I don't think it was yeah. Emmy nominated. But no, I, most critics loved it. Most most everybody loved this. But there are some negative reviews out there and usually those reviews are about how, um, and actually even some of the positive reviews that are positive solely because this stupid show about vampires finally did an episode that wasn't about vampires. And so there are a handful of complaints that in an otherwise completely vampire free, completely like just straight nor quote unquote normal episode, they had to throw a vampire in at the end. Um, whereas I feel like, uh, the introduction of the vampire at the end, like you said, um, it not only became the physical manifestation of death that they have to overcome. And in fact, this is the time when, after she defeats the vampire is the first time we see Buffy clearly acknowledge that she is accepting her mother's dead. Her mother is gone because she tells Dawn that's not her. Yeah. Um, 
but it's also a reminder just like the all the sound effects i was talking about earlier and just like the fact that xander got a, a parking ticket it's another reminder that mun the mundane world which in the world of buffy the vampire slayer includes buffy's job her her job is to kill vampires yeah. uh, the mundane world continues like the world keeps turning even though it feels like your world has come to an end yeah so. absolutely yeah um and the moment that most gets to me in this entire episode is are the the closing moments where where Buffy says that's not her and or or doesn't she say um she's not there or um yeah I can't I thought she said that that's that's not her but uh... and she she might have but Don's response is to say where would she, she go? go yeah um and the you know she reaches out to touch her mother and the final shot of the episode is one of the more haunting final shots of anything uh which is again joyce's dead body which we've seen throughout the entire episode and dawn's hand slowly reaching into frame and it cuts to black before she makes contact yeah so it's like this um this unknowable thing we don't know where she went you know there there's there's no logical knowledgeable response to that question yeah there's no there so in many ways one of i i think one of the points of this episode is that they're they're kind of there are no easy answers and there kind of isn't any resolution or closure that that you can get in a moment like this so the episode doesn't really allow most genre fans most most people who are watching buffy the vampire slayer at the time uh, have been raised on a diet of pop culture where the only way a, a television show deals with death is we either see the character die or we get to go to the funeral this doesn't give us either of those things um, we don't actually witness the character dying and we don't get the release, the, the, the closure of going to a funeral. This is all the uncomfortable, awkward stuff that happens in between those two things. Um, and the fact that we don't get even the tiny bit of closure for Dawn of her finally getting to like, like her making contact. There's just no, there's no, uh, release of tension for the viewers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even when we do get to see the funeral in the next episode, forever, um, it almost feels like an afterthought. No, not in a in a critical way of the writing. Just it feels like this this was the emotional piece of it, and the funeral is is for other people, which is honestly how it kind of feels. Yeah. In real life. Yeah. Um, there's a to to quote uh, Joss Whedon from the commentary. He says, "Quote." My experience with death is that apart from a lot of people hugging at funerals, it seldom brings people together. It actually tears them apart. And I had always learned from TV that death made everybody stronger and better and learn about themselves. And my experience was that an important piece had been taken out of the puzzle and there is no glorious payoff, end quote. Um, and that, that is very true. There's, there's no closure you can't ever really achieve closure with any sort of finality. You know, you can experience moments of closure, but you never have the final answer 
you never have that final moment of, oh, this all makes sense and everything's okay. And you never will. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hmm. It, it's, it's, it's an incredible way to end an incredible episode. Um, absolutely amazing. Um, absolutely one of the uh, most realistic, most haunting uh, depictions of grief and loss that I've ever seen. Uh, it is still the best episode of television I've ever seen. I, yeah, I was I was going to say a lot of people, and I would be one of them, hold this up not just as like one of, if not the best episode of Buffy, but just one of the best episodes of television. Period. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and in case anyone uh, listening out there has, you know, lost a parent or been through a similar experience like this, um, I would say uh, there are a couple other works of art that I would like to recommend that like this really kind of help you uh, process it and realize that your experiences are not just your own. These are universal experiences. Um, The musician Phil Elverham, uh, who usually records as Mount Erie, released a couple of albums after his wife died. Um, the first one came out in 2017 uh, called A Crow Looked at Me, and that was followed up last year by Now Only. Both of those albums taken together are an absolutely stark, haunting, overwhelming expression of grief it in all of its horrible minutiae um it's extremely tough to listen to so it's it's not just something kind of like the body it's not something you just throw on to be on in the background um these are albums that really demand uh intent listening and they are some of the most beautiful lyrics and some of the most painful performances I have ever heard. And he's the only person, uh, he's the, for sure the only person that plays on a crow looked at me and no, he, yeah, he's the only person that plays on either of those albums. So it's, it's just him and relating the experience of his wife's death in heartbreaking detail. So that's a crow looked at me. What was the second album? Now only. Okay. So I strongly, strongly recommend them, but only if you know what you're getting into. Um, And and I feel feel so bad for Phil Elverham because he he got remarried earlier this year. Uh, He got married to uh, Michelle Williams, the actor. Wow. And and then they divorced very quickly. So and I hate I hate that I had this thought, but I was like, well, that's going to be a great album next year. Oh, my God. (laughs) But but no, those. So so if you're looking for something like the body that really is a realistic, haunting, beautiful depiction of what happens in moments like this, um, I absolutely recommend A Crow Looked at Me and Now Only. Excellent. Okay. Well, I hear your dog becoming active in the background. <laughs> it's true. He he wanted to become part of the uh the episode. So, I I that's probably our signal. Um are there any final thoughts anything that we we didn't uh get to discuss? I think we were pretty thorough. I think we were pretty thorough. I'm sure there's something that will occur to me once we're done here, but uh 
but no, I think we, I, I think we kind of got everything. Yeah. Well, I, props to both of us for, uh, for not breaking down on Mike. So. <laughs> it was, it was tough. It yeah. was tough. Yeah. Um, and let me, uh, the, the, I guess the only other thing I would say is how do we think this figures into the season as a whole? Um, my, my read on it is that, um, so the first act is Buffy's singular experience. The second act is Dawn's singular experience. And then at the end with that, the, that penultimate shot of all three summers women, um, even though one of them is gone now, um, that that to me that's the through line uh, that brings this episode uh, of a piece with the rest of the season in that it's very much about family and bloodline uh, and yeah the, who the summers are I completely agree with that I also feel like um, this this season has it also deals with the concept of loss um, which like Buffy's already lost Riley. I know that's not the same thing, but that's one kind of loss. Uh, another theme that runs through this season is uh, Buffy not not learning her limits, but Buffy being faced with uh, ha- having to fight against things that she's not prepared or, or or not strong enough to to fight. And I mean, the big bad of the season is Glory, who uh, has demonstrated multiple times at this point in the season that she can wipe the floor with Buffy. Um, and so Buffy just has to come to terms with the fact that glory is stronger than she is. And in this episode, she, you know, you could be the slayer, you can be super strong and, and all that, but you, you can't fight death. So, yeah. Yeah. Oh, damn. (laughs) Some heavy stuff, man. All right. Well, this was, this was a fun, a fun little, fun little romp. It, it it may not have been fun, but I, I am glad that I got to come on and discuss this episode. Uh, as as many outs as you tried to give me, I think I would have really regretted it if uh, if anyone else had been the one in the hot seat. I, I'm I'm glad that you you stuck to your guns. I'm also glad that you talked me. So so the other option I gave you is that you could have had you could have shared the seat with another guest. We could have done two guests just to take some of the the pressure off of you. And you were like, no, I think this. I think I probably need to do this alone. And I'm glad you, you uh, convinced me. I really was worried and I, I really kind of wanted a second guest uh, just to, to cushion the blow, but uh, you did great. You wanted, you wanted to second guess by having a second guest. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, yeah, I, I think it, I think it came off. I think it worked. It was good. It was good. So thank you, Arlo, for absolutely. Thanks for, for having me. Joining me. Um, I can't remember what you're signed up for next, but uh, you'll be back. I'll be back. You'll be back. Um, then you'll see. <laughs> Take it away. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, thank you at home for listening, for, for getting through this with us. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. While you're there, please rate us or write us a review and help spread the word. Uh, if you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you just would like to share your thoughts on anything that we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com, follow us on Twitter at conswithdead, or reach out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash conswithdead. Uh, next week, I haven't confirmed a guest yet, but whoever the lucky dead person is, uh, they'll get to join me to talk about episodes 517 Forever, uh, which is an- another 
lighthearted romp. Uh, 518 Intervention and 519 Tough Love. So until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Yeah.